Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight, we begin a new six-part series by David Cayley called The Earth is Not an Ecosystem. The programs were recorded in the spring of 1992 at a conference organized by the Interculture Institute of Montreal. Interculture, since its founding in 1968, has promoted dialogue between cultures and traditions and explored the invigorating but also exacting prospect which a true pluralism places before the world. In the year of the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, the Institute brought representatives of grassroots organizations from all over the world to Orford, Quebec, to consider the question of ecology from this cultural perspective. Their consensus was that the banner of sustainable development under which the Rio Conference convened cannot comprehend the diversity of paths and peoples which exist in our world, nor answer their demand for justice. David Cayley was at the conference, and there he recorded the interviews you will hear over the course of this series. The Earth is Not an Ecosystem, by David Cayley. Development is a concept drawn originally out of biology, where it describes the way in which an organism achieves its proper form. It signifies a movement from potentiality to actuality, in which what will be is already genetically present. After the Second World War, this term began to be used to give a semblance of naturalness and inevitability to the spread of Western ideas and institutions throughout the world. U.S. President-elect Harry Truman set the tone in his 1949 inaugural address when he used the word to suggest both a duty for the rich and a need for the poor. We must embark on a bold new program for making the benefits of our scientific advances and industrial progress available for the improvement and growth of underdeveloped areas. More than half the people of the world are living in conditions approaching misery. Their food is inadequate. They are victims of disease. Their economic life is primitive and stagnant. Their poverty is a handicap and a threat both to them and to more prosperous areas. I believe that we should make available to peace-loving peoples the benefits of our store of technical knowledge in order to help them realize their aspirations for a better life. And in cooperation with other nations, we should foster capital investment in areas needing development. Truman's project has changed its shape several times since he first enunciated it, but it has always retained the name development and the implication that all roads lead to this modern Rome. At the conference on which this series is based, this claim to universality was challenged on both practical and philosophical grounds. The first of these challenges was issued by Father Raymond Panikar, a man who partly inspired the work of the Interculture Institute by his lifelong effort to follow out the radical implications of a plural conception of reality. Father Panikar is a Roman Catholic priest, professor emeritus of the University of California, and the author of numerous books in several languages, including The Unknown Christ of Hinduism, Myth, Faith, and Hermeneutics, and The Interreligious Dialogue. A product of two cultures himself, his father was from India, his mother from Spain, where he was born and now lives, his work has posed the question, 
how can cultures and religious traditions coexist while making obviously incompatible claims about what is ultimately true? Can they be present to each other in ways that do not involve either subordination of one to the other or a relativism which denies both claims? His answer has been that they can do so only under conditions of dialogue and only under the assumption that, I quote him, the very nature of truth is pluralistic. In his introductory remarks at Orford, he addressed the question of development and pointed out that dialogue can never begin on the basis of a term which pretends to universal validity. I took up the same question in my subsequent conversation with him. We are today in a nominalistic society and we don't give practically any importance to names. And still, names are very powerful. And the name of development, which has led us to this conference, is one of those powerful words. Development today is a very loaded, and I may also uh, add dangerous word, because willy-nilly we are cut into the mega-machine which will utilize the good services of those people who want to do good work for interest and purposes we are far from those of people working on the grassroots. What is in the word development for you? In the word development for me is a kind of identifying progress, well-being, happiness with the introduction of the machines. It's as simple as that. So development is to enter into the predominant culture accepting its methods of action first, bulldozers, tractors, and all the rest, and finishing by having to adopt its ways of thinking. And by this very way, this kind of introduction uh, works as a Trojan horse which destroys from within the host cultures which have adopted those methods, thinking that those methods which are alien to them will, will uh, better their own situation. In what sense is uh, development of the Western culture? Well, first of all, uh, it's a fact. The word was invented by the West. The methods are invented by the West. Uh, the procedures are all Western procedures. So it's an historical fact. Second, the underlying presuppositions of development assume a certain type of anthropology and cosmology, and that was the difficult part of my uh, talk yesterday, which are exclusively of one single culture. The very concept of matter, of time, of space, force, belong to one particular culture. And I'm saying it's right, right or wrong, I'm saying that is, is a fact. And within that culture, that may be a very good thing, perhaps. That's another different question. But all this transplanted into another culture produces havoc. And the results are clear. After the first uh, 30 or little more years of enthusiasm about development, thinking that development would give us the panacea of the entire world, in the last 10 years at least, we begin to discover that this may not be the real solution. You mentioned an anthropology and a cosmology. Yes. The anthropology. Anthropology means the underlying notion of man. I would not like to make uh, straight away a critique of that conception of man, but certainly is not the conception of man of any other uh, cultures in the world during millennia 
the idea that man is simply a bundle of needs. And if I satisfy those needs in the best way I can, this particular fellow will be happy, I think, very primitive in the pejorative sense of the word. So the underlying conception of man in most of the development uh, activities implies that you have to develop. That means to simply to, to stretch it out, <coughs> to explain, to take from within something which was already implicitly there. And by this very fact, you kill spontaneity. You kill surprise. You kill uh, a, a, a new thing. Because all the things you have to do is to unfold the things which were already there. And you unfold it all the better, the, the clearer the, the, the highway in front of you is and the quicker you can go. So acceleration and all the things we have uh, today under development. And this is not how other cultures have understood life. Then after all, what is the meaning of life? Uh, what, what are we here for? That's why the whole problem is religious, mystical, metaphysical, not a problem of development or not development. This anthropology has to be examined, criticized, and, and being aware of it. There's an attempt going on now, quite widespread, to redefine development. I mean, it's been continuously yes. going on, but now we're in the phase of sustainable development. What is your reaction to well, that? Well, my reaction is of admiration. I admire the naivete <laughs> and good intention of such movement. I spoke in my lecture also of the inertia of the institutions and the inertia of the mind. Development is in. It's very difficult to put it out. And so if the first developments you mentioned don't work, we now uh, try to find out another type of development which may work and may work for a while. And sustainable development, I think, is a very positive progress within an overall context, which I criticize. The sustainable development, to me, is almost a contradiction in terms. Because I understand development, and I could uh, substantiate that through all the history of the word and the applications of the word, as a, an application of the modern techno-science to the betterment of society and to the betterment of man. And this techno-science has broken the natural rhythms of time, of space, of life, of everything. And having broken the natural rhythms, the development does, is not sustainable by itself. Somebody has to sustain it. A dictatorship? or uh, a think tank, or uh, who are going to sustain that development which having broken the natural rhythms is not by itself sustainable. If you go against the laws of gravitation, for instance, you have to put a hand or you have to put something that sustains the, the body from falling down. And having broken the natural rhythms, and that's very difficult to see within the Western culture which since 450 years lives out of acceleration. So in a way there's something more sinister in a sustainable development concept than in a more mechanical well, in, in concept in the sense that it is a, a cosmos more fully in the hands of man. Well, yes. 
Because now we will actually sustain yeah. development. Which means amounts to prolong the agony of a system condemned to death. And that is, is our tragic situation. And here is where the intellectual have a responsibility. Not to say to the people in the grassroots communities, you are wrong. But you have probably, as I said yesterday, in Loki, we need to be reconverted, converted. Otherwise, the only thing we do is simply to prolong an agony of a system which is in itself unjust. We have learned in the last 40 years that justice cannot be established by simply development of any kind. If I have a car, that means this car is good for me. It should be good for everybody, I, I, I imagine. Well, a car for everybody would be the death of the planet in 10 years. And here is a situation in which we need, as I constantly say, not patchwork, just trying to make sustainable development, which will be a little more human, nor destruction, I mean violence, but transformation. This moment of ours, yes. in the midst of this brokenness, yes. how would you define it? You made a point yesterday of, of the fact that this is unprecedented. Yes. That you don't want this to be seen as, well, this is the end of communism or the beginning of a new era. No. But this is a moment unlike any other moment. It's much more serious. Yes, unlike any other moment. That's what I, in a, in a, in a sentence which I wrote uh, 15 years ago, but I cannot repeat it now because it has been monopolized in another sense, in the end of history, the end of historical consciousness. Historical man comes to an end. We cannot live any longer just work, working for the future, going along the road towards Jerusalem, heaven, classless society, perfect uh, well-being or whatever. We have to discover something which transcends time. We have to discover something which makes meaning to your life in whatever milieu you live. Our situation is far from being correct. That's what I think I learned from Solzhenitsyn. And that's what I think what Solzhenitsyn irritated the Soviets. Not that he was a Christian. There were many Christians everywhere there in Russia. Not that he was against the regime. Everybody was against the regime in a more or less way. But that he wrote and he lived trying to show that life, human life and life to the full, can have a meaning even in a concentration camp and in a gulag. And that is revolutionary. That has a danger to, to content myself living there and doing nothing. But that has the possibility of freeing my hands to work done then for others because my life is not hampered, jeopardized or, or broken because I live in an unjust society. And that's, I think that is the spiritual message of meditating on development and our situation. Such meditation, Father Panikar believes, can show us just how unique is the situation in which we live. Unique in at least two respects. First, there is what he called the end of history in the essay he alluded to a moment ago. This essay was published in 1983, a number of years before Francis Fukuyama gave the phrase the Hegelian inflection it now has in the public mind. Panikar used it in a very different sense. He argued to paraphrase him very crudely, that with the splitting of the atom, the deciphering of the genetic code, and many subsequent breaches in the integrity of nature, 
the future has become an impossible and unthinkable destination. With the taste of doom already in the air, development cannot go on unrolling endlessly. Oral societies, Panikar says, live in the light of the past, reaching back to their origins, retelling the myths. Historical societies are oriented to the future. Contemporary people who have glimpsed the back parts of the myth of history have the mystic's vocation of discovering the fullness of life in the present. The second unique feature of our age is the interpenetration of cultures and traditions. Development, seen in this light, has always been the dictation of the ruling institutions, a monologue, not a dialogue. And it is a dialogue between cultures that Panikar has tried to imagine. Culture, as you know, is a very modern word. It has not a pedigree more than one century and a half before the word was uh, used, but in a totally different sense, mm. in the sense of agriculture, agriculture or as uh, one of the beautiful definitions of philosophy is by Cicero, who defines philosophy as cultura animi. The culture of the spirit, or the culture of the mind, we would say, is philosophy. But that's not the way in which we understand today culture. The word culture, that's why it's rather modern term, term to signify or to what I would call it the encompassing myth. That which we take for granted, the context in which we live, that is what I would call now roughly culture. And the meeting of cultures implies ultimately the meeting of people in their deepest recesses. Because I am not I, just uh, an isolated individual. Uh, I am I because in, in one way or another, not only I have that experience thanks to language and education and time where I live, etc., etc., but I somewhat, in me, in any one of us, crystallizes the experience of an entire human group which for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years has lived crystallized in, in all the spontaneous things we do and, and, and ideas we have and language we use. So the meeting of cultures is the meeting of human beings in the deepest recesses of the archetypes that make those people people. And today, and I would say this may be a very, side, a very beautiful side effect of the, of the technocratic world, uh, we no longer live in isolation. The cultures uh, mix and touch and, and, and misunderstand and in some way enter into a chaos. Yeah, they do enter into a chaos, certainly. They do. So maybe I go to an Indian restaurant. Yes, but... And I maybe I say to my friend, well, you know, something uh, that he has bad karma or something. Yeah, yeah. And as a person from a Christian background, exactly. probably I know absolutely nothing of what I'm saying. But nevertheless, this kind of uh, inroads, if well worked out, may be very positive. Although, as I constantly say, especially uh, in countries like Canada, is that cultures are not folklore. I mean, culture is not an Indian restaurant or is, is not uh, uh, Greek music. Culture is that all-encompassing myth which has created spontaneously almost that kind of food and that kind of music. When you are asked to define the term culture, you use the term myth. 
Yes. <laughs> so explaining one obscure thing through another, which is still more complicated, yes. Well, myth, I have a whole list and phenomenology of myth. My first sentence is the myth is that in which we so much believe that we not even believe that we believe in it. It goes without saying. It's taken for granted. So that air in which we breathe, without making any artificial thing, because we take it for granted that the air allows us to meet and to, and to see each other and to breathe, that is always the myth. So the all-encompassing myth, the origin of intelligibility would be an academic phrase, is what I call culture. So the West then is the myth of history and science? The West is the myth of history and science and of matter as an inanimate thing which uh, is there and which we can manipulate uh, for our benefit. And that is, is, is so obvious that if you dare to touch this sacred cow, people get a little irritated yeah. because that is what is, is taken for granted. That is not discussed. It's not negotiable because, uh, no, then where we are. All right, that is the challenge when we meet another culture uh, in depth which undermines our presuppositions, if you allow me to play with words, which a, a presupposition is different from, from an assumption. Assumption is a kind of axiom, you, 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 you assume in order to do something, like in mathematics. The presupposition is not the supposition, something which you, you put uh, underneath, something which is previously put underneath before you aren't even aware of that. It's, that is the myth, it's that we take for granted. Is there where we stop because we don't feel the need to go further? Today we are in a situation in which every single culture, the others clearly enough, and the Western the same, begin to realize that they are not self-sufficient, that they cannot cope with the human condition, that they cannot solve the problems in which we are now stricken into. And here is where the mutual fecundation of cultures is paramount. And here is where the methodological uh, difficulties are also very, very high. Because we cannot meet on, e on equal grounds. There is no round table conference because that ground would be already another culture. But if I assume and take for granted that the ground, dollars, English, development, etc., uh, etc., et is the normal ground, then obviously I'm lost, because I am no, no longer on my ground. And that's the difficulty from all points of view, methodologically and practically and existentially, because obviously the ground which offers itself is the ground of this extraordinary expansive uh, force of Western civilization. So we have to work out through patience and cunning through concessions and fidelity playing to the four words mm -hmm. uh, somewhat uh, on purpose a ground in which different cultures begin to enter into a relationship in which the first round is to work out the ground on which we shall meet but how to make a ground when you've said at the outset, that there is no ground. By making it. So you, the technocrat, I, the pygmy, we meet, that is an existential act. 
And when we meet as cultures, our discourse is not on concepts, not on words, but on discovering the underlying myth which you don't see and I help you to see and my myth which I don't see and you help me to see. Let's put just a simple example then everybody laughs. At the moment that you listen to me, you, you think for yourself, well, this man speaks with an accent. <laughs> Certainly I speak with an accent. <laughs> and what about you? <laughs> you also speak with an accent. Your accent is more beautiful to the ears of your listeners. Okay. Your accent is more correct according to certain books. All right. So you are aware of my accent, but you are not aware of your accent. And you need me to tell you, oh, sir, you also speak with an accent. <laughs> I'm saying that your accent is not better or more correct. That's nothing. So you help me to discover that I speak with an accent. And, I, and if I want to accommodate and to be myself understood, I'll try to imitate your accent. But I shall help you to tell you, sir, you speak also with an accent. So this is the meeting of cultures. And that's why it's dangerous on the one hand, but is enormously enriching on the on another hand. It's dangerous because it undermines your, your certainties. And to live without certainties sometimes is not comfortable, especially some type of cultures which want certainty and security and atomic bombs in order to sleep uh, without anxiety. But it's liberating on the other hand, because the moment that you, you lose you, you, your fear, you begin to enjoy the gift of freedom. But the worst enemy of freedom is not the shackles, is fear. And generally, great part of populations are terrorized by fear of all types. Fear of death, fear of the police, fear of my bank account, fear that my wife is going to betray me, fear that my children are going to be drug addicts, fear of all types, which makes life miserable. And then we are not free. That's part of my wisdom. <laughs> it's not an easy thing, certainly. So if religions meet yes. each other in this way, and you make my accent known to me, yes. I obviously have to abandon the fundamental form of my religion, that view which holds that I don't have an accent, you have an accent. Yes. So it, religions tend to discover more subtle forms in each other by this encounter ideally we discover the relativity of each religion but relativity is not relativism relativism would be that that okay i mean doesn't matter relativity is that you do not absolutize your accent as the norm now and forever that you do not absolutize your religion as the only one thing that exists in the world and all the rest is simply hocus-pocus, wrong, or simply on the way to your place. So relativity is the experience of contingency, ultimately. The experience that you are not alone in the world. The experience that your ideas are right and wonderful and true, but that there are some other fellows in the world which have also right and true and wonderful ideas and which do not coalesce with yours, or with mine, obviously. So the meeting of religions do not lead neither to a common denominator, 
We were all saying the same. We were not saying the same. Nor to war of religions, because I don't, don't not saying the same, then the, I'm right, you are wrong. But to an acknowledgement of pluralism, if you want one word, that you don't need to dilute your own convictions in order to make room for my own convictions and, and, and beliefs, etc., etc. Although you, from your point of view, you do not agree and you cannot agree and you will not agree with my convictions. But because you discover the relativity of your own system, you are not imposing your system on me and just chasing me because I'm wrong. This is obviously a problem for the Western culture, which produces Mainly. a term like development, which pretends to be the comprehensive term for how human beings should live. Yes. But presumably it's not only a problem for the West. For instance? For instance, the amount of inter-ethnic slaughter on the Indian subcontinent. Oh, yes. You mean development is has this pretension to universality because mm -hmm. the techno-science has a pretension to universality and because one of the features of Western culture is uh, to claim universality and that which I contest for, for philosophical reasons. But uh, this does not mean that other cultures have not many other defects, faults and evils, certainly. What are the philosophical reasons you alluded to, that, uh, the grounds on which you could contest Western claims to universality? Well, Plato and Kant, all the Western peoples have and accept a diffuse Platonism and a cryptic Kantianism, i.e., <laughs> should be translated. We all believe that ideas, ideas are disincarnated and thus eternal, i.e., universal, Plato. We all believe generally, I mean, the, the, the Western yeah. man tends to believe that this thing in itself, like a god or like uh, beauty, which is seen from different places and different ways. I contest these two assumptions. And it's very interesting to know that a religion like Christianity, which is a religion of, of incarnation, mm. seems to have capitulated in front of Platonism, which sets a kind of eternal, timeless, spaceless values somewhere, and then obviously universality, because this is not bound by time, by space, by culture, by, by anything. And that, I think, is the greatness and the weakness of Western culture. So in the development crusade, we can see a final... Exactly. What hopes? Exactly. Chapter of this. Be because we try to universalize development as we have tried to universalize the I mean, science, or had we tried to universalize the Christian religion. You see, before it was, you want the Latin, extra ecclesiam nulla salus, outside the church there is no salvation. Now, extra scientiam nulla salus, outside science there is no salvation. It's the same syndrome, the same archetype, working on a secularized level, which makes it even worse. And that, to see that, we need to step into the worldview and the cosmology of another culture. Cultures can clarify and correct each other. But no culture, in Father Panikar's view, is now entirely adequate to its unprecedented circumstances. The past, inherited as tradition, 
is no more a comprehensive guide than the future, projected as endless progress. It is in the present, he says, that we must discover ourselves, and in what is present that alternatives to development must be found. We should not romanticize the past in any way. That's why the solution does not lie in going to the past, but also does not lie in going to the future, as it were, but in transcending time, if you want my philosophical way of saying it, which, incidentally, there is a sentence, not in the East, not in American Indians, but in St. Augustine, which I try to live by myself and then uh, like to quote very often, very simple, even everybody can understand even in, in his Latin, ut tu sis transcende tempus. In order that you be, in order that you are, that you be, overcome time, transcend time. If we only live in the avenue of time, in the highway of time, going somewhere, our lives are going to be miserable. And, and, and here is again my critique of development, that the idea of time as simply a highway through which we sky or, or drive or go or walk or run or fly is a very dangerous and ultimately wrong metaphor because we are more than just machines going to an end. That's why I was, I startled people very often, people saying, well, if I die tomorrow, I will not feel my life frustrated. I don't put my, the whole of my life in, in, in the day after tomorrow. I put them in today and try to live up to the full. And that's a spiritual thing, that's a material thing, and, and, and that is something for which very often we are, let me use the word, underdeveloped. We have not been uh, fostering that I am in end in myself and not means for something else. And development, because I try to keep the, the, the center, is always something speaking about means. And what about the end? The end will come at the end. And this end comes never, or when it comes it's too late, or whatever it is. If I don't find the goal in the way, I miss my way. But we have lost sometimes even the, the capacity of this looking inside to be able to put myself fully in the present situation. For, for that needs an inwardness without which man is hardly man. It's just then a species. And this inwardness means, means, means meditation or means uh, quiet or means silence or means to discover yourself and who you are. And at the same time, that is the springboard, as it were, to jump over yourself and discovering that the, in this jump, you carry with it your own truer self. So it's not a question of jumping into a transcendence, which is a kind of uh, linear transcendence in the future or uh, up in the skies, but it's a transcendence which is the mirror and complement of your own immanence. What we have lost by and large today is, let me use another dangerous word, the mystical experience, which is not seeing the clouds or making miracles or being queer, but is of discovering the uniqueness of my life the irrepetibility of that particular thing that I am in the entire adventure of, of the universe and of discovering that I am the shaper of my own destiny 
And by doing that, I also shape, along with many infinite other forces, the entire reality. That's difficult to say, I understand, it sounds somewhat abstract perhaps, but unless we reach that unity between our activity and in, in, in our being, action and contemplation we want, I don't think that we can speak of uh, life lived to the full. Raymond Panikar, speaking in Orford, Quebec, in the spring of 1992. He was there as the opening and closing speaker at a conference called Living with the Earth, on which this series of programs is based. In 1983, the United Nations created the World Commission on Environment and Development, subsequently known by the name of its chairman, Norwegian Prime Minister Gro Harlem Brundtland. In 1987, the commission released its report under the title Our Common Future. In response to what it called the downward spiral of linked ecological and economic decline, the commission proposed a new slogan, Sustainable Development. This was necessary, the Commission argued, because the main threat to the environment comes from poverty, and therefore only development can forestall further degradation. This view was reinforced at Rio de Janeiro in the summer of 1992 when the world's leaders gathered for the Earth Summit, properly the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, or UNSED for short. Just after the UN conference, the British magazine The Ecologist published a special issue called Whose Common Future? Twenty years before, the ecologist had produced a celebrated manifesto called Blueprint for Survival. Now its editors were less disposed towards blueprints and more towards defending the world's remaining commons. In Whose Common Future, they argued that there is nothing new at all about sustainable development. It only continues the process begun centuries before with the enclosure of common lands in Europe and continued throughout the colonial and post-colonial era. Enclosure and privatization, they argue, is what development really means. One of the editors of The Ecologist, Nick Hilliard, was at the conference where these programs were recorded, and he gave me what was then a preview of their critique of sustainable development. The whole Brundtland discourse ignores the issue of power. And for us, that issue is absolutely fundamental to the whole debate on sustainable development, sustainable environments, on culture. And unless one takes on the issue of, of power, we see the sort of solutions that are being worked out within UNSED and other fora as further causing environmental destruction, further causing oppression, further causing social injustice. So we've been trying to get in touch with uh, groups all over the world, grassroots groups, those who are not particularly interested or perhaps even don't even know about UNSAID and what's going on in Brazil and are certainly not going to be attending that conference, to try to learn from them through their struggles, through the campaigns they're fighting, through the, the work that they're doing every day, how they view the key issues in environment and development and the sort of issues that they're bringing up are very, very different from 
the sort of issues that Brundtland are bringing up. So, for example, when Brundtland talks about our common future, the attempt to eradicate conflict from the agenda, the groups on the ground are saying, whose common future are you talking about? We may all share the same planet, and in that sense, of course, we have a common future. But the idea that a peasant in Bihar shares the same interests, the same future as the chairman of DuPont or ICI is simply farcical, and they know that, and they reject it. The groups on the ground reject the idea that the answer lies in management. They want to ask, management for whom, by whom? The groups on the rege uh, ground reject the idea that this is somehow a recent crisis. They know perfectly well that it's been going on for 500 years, more than that. Those European settlers who came over here, many of them had been thrown off the land. The groups on the ground reject the idea that the solutions can only come from those institutions like corporations, like uh, development agencies, which have been primarily responsible for the crisis. They say, no, the solutions lie with us. We have the solutions. We don't need to invent alternatives. In our daily lives, we're working them out. We are innovative. We don't need to be empowered. We don't need someone to empower us. What we need is people to get off our backs. So it's putting those sort of issues out as a, as a statement and exploring what we see as the, the key theme of development, which is actually enclosure, expropriation, taking away people's land, enclosing knowledge, denying access to resources, creating resources out of the environment, creating the notion of resources, and then denying people access to their water, to their forests, to their, their lands, using those lands for others, transferring power to a small minority, transferring control to a small minority. These are the issues that really matter on the ground. And unless those issues are addressed, I don't see much hope for either the planet or for social justice. And I think social justice is now the key issue the key issue, the idea of saving the world without social justice is for me, for someone who's been involved in this movement for 20 years, simply not worth considering. I wouldn't want to live in the sort of world that was a technocratic, echo-fascist, but saved world. Can you say concretely how the Brundtland discourse, the new global managerial environmentalism, is working against the interests you fought for? Well, let me give you one example. Within UNSAID, the uh, agenda on agriculture has been mainly drawn up by FAO, UN Food and Agriculture Organization. And it goes under the name of Sustainable Agriculture and Rural Development. Actually, it was originally going to be called Sustainable Agriculture and Development. But someone pointed out the acronym was SAD, SAD. <laughs> so they put in the rural. I know that from insiders within FAO. But within, that, within that, uh, that document that puts out an agenda for sustainable agriculture, the key idea is that of management. And the way it's defined is this. There's a team of experts take an environment and they look at, to see whether, quote, the man-land ratio is exceeded. And if it is, then they recommend that people should be moved should be encouraged to transmigrate out of that area. 
The question of why those people were there in the first place, why they may be there in numbers that put pressure on the land, is not asked. The option of reclaiming the best land, the land that's being used for, for export crops, is not even considered. The dialogue is instead changing. They don't talk about export crops anymore. They talk about agricultural systems where the biomass is being taken away from the land. In other words, it's being exported. So the language is changing, and it's changing into a managerial style that covers the conflicts, that disguises the conflicts, and which puts technocrats really at the helm. They're the ones who will decide which environments can have a dam, and they'll decide it on the basis of cost-benefit analysis. And if you happen to be living there, and in the way of that dam, or in the way of, uh, or, or because you're living in a, in a fragile ecosystem, you happen to be placing too much um, stress on the environment, you'll be moved out. The other option, the options of, of intelligent self-limitation are simply not there. So management, essentially, will just mean more control over people in the interests of those who are now profiting from enclosure. What you see in Brundtland is an attempt to globalize the commons and to claim it for elites. What you see in the other movements, the movements of the real movements for change, is an attempt to reclaim the local. And it's in the local that I think the future lies. What are the things that you're particularly in touch with, that you're particularly interested in, in this respect? Increasingly, I'm focusing on two areas. One, one is on land reform and the whole agra well, agrarian reform. And the other is on biotechnology. Biotechnology, because I see it as one of the new movements of colonization, colonization of the seed, and where farmers lose control of that final input, the seed, they will actually have lost control completely of production. It will be, they will be tools complete tools of the corporations. And in agrarian reform, because it is in reclaiming, that, making that first step to reclaim the land, the first vital resource on which we all depend, that I think without that, that first step, many of the other initiatives, many of the other areas for reclaiming political space that is real commons is not possible. So those are two areas that, that we're working on particularly at the moment. Um, what are your plans, hopes for this report that you've done? We hope that people will just read it, act on it if they feel they agree with it, debate it, use it as a tool. It is not, and purposefully doesn't try to set down any blueprint, any one scheme for getting out of the crisis, because I don't believe in blueprints. Although 20 years ago the ecologists published the blueprint for survival, I think there was a certain naivety there in, a, in thinking that we could set down one model, one way of action, and in particular in appealing to government to enact that one model. I think that the diversity of approaches, publicizing those, the, the diversity, giving support to the many movements around the world, letting people know that things are going on, that there are these other groups, and appealing to those groups to make alliances between themselves, to, between each other, to, to find common cause. We've been working very much on this within Europe in trying to get together a coalition of um, 
farming groups, um, organic farming and non-organic, um, consumer groups, animal welfare groups, uh, groups in, interested in third world issues, and trying to get an alliance together on particularly on the, the issue of uh, reform of the CAP. But one of the interesting things about that alliance is that it's gelled because instead of concentrating on single issues like let's get rid of pesticides, it's taken the view that to ask farmers to get rid of pesticides when they're on an economic treadmill that forces them to use pesticides is unreasonable. But to make common cause with those farmers who are on that treadmill and to seek ways of changing the economic climate, of changing the political climate so that they can move off it, that's a different agenda. And by coming together as alliances, accepting as ones that there are differences, you're never going to completely persuade people, you're never going to, to come to one view of the future. But in accepting those differences and working together on those areas of agreement and expanding those areas of agreement, change can come about slowly, slowly, but it will come about. And I think it is only by taking that slowly, slowly approach that we'll actually, we'll actually uh, overcome this, this uh, other Brundtland-type crisis management where the projection is of, a, of a, a world that's going down the tube so rapidly that we've got to trust even those people who have been most destructive in the past. That's an interesting point, this, the feeling of what is done in the name of urgency and with the feeling of urgency. I feel slightly guilty talking about this because we brought out in, in Britain a, a book with the title that I didn't actually like, but the publishers liked, called 5,000 Days to Save the Planet. And I think it, it gives, I mean, it may well be true, it may well be true, <laughs> but it gives the wrong signal. It gives the signal that because we're in such a crisis, we've got to take desperate measures. And that the process, the political process, that will ensure that those measures are taken without social injustice, without causing more problems, will be sidetracked. And you can see this crisis management in, in many of the uh, statements that are coming out of UNSED. You know, we, we, the, the, the blame is always on something that the institutions feel that they can deal with, population, that they can send out French letters, that they can, worse than that, make deals with corporations that will, for reproductive technologies, for example, that will seriously impact women. The accent is on finding problems that seem readily accessible to solutions. My colleague Teddy Goldsmith always talks about problem-multiplying mechanisms and solution-multiplying mecha mechanisms. And the top-down approach, the crisis management approach, sometimes it looks as if it's solving one problem, but actually it's multiplying the problems. So if you go for population control, trying to control the population, automatically the question comes up, which section of the population are you controlling? You create distance between people. You create political structures that are more and more oppressive, and that creates problems. If you go for an alternative view, which would be to increase self-determination of women and of, and, and of men with, with women as to how many children they have, you begin to create more of a process that is a gradual change, but which changes many more problems along the way. Nick Hildred, 
co-editor of the British magazine, The Ecologist. Discussion continues along these lines in the next program of this series, when I'll talk to Bolivian geographer David Tuchschneider about the restoration of traditional agriculture in the Andes and with village activist Cherno Khan from Senegal. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part one of The Earth is Not an Ecosystem, written and presented by David Cayley. The series continues tomorrow night. Technical production was by Lorne Tulk, production assistants Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. We would like to thank Kalpana Das and her colleagues at Interculture. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $5 or $20 for the entire series of six programs. Write us at Ideas Transcripts, Echo System, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. When ordering individual programs, please tell us which date you want and be prepared to wait up to eight weeks from the conclusion of the series for your transcript. A collection of David Cayley's earlier programs on ecology is also available in book form from James Lorimer and Company. The book is called The Age of Ecology, and it's in bookstores across Canada. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Thank you.